Thank you so much for choosing to join us spend your Sunday morning here at Bridge Community Church. Whether this is your first time here or your 200th time here, we're glad that you're here with us. So uh, here at Bridge, we have five core, uh, core values uh, that, that we teach and that we believe in. And over the course of 2024, we're going to be hitting each of those different uh, five core values. Uh, and they spell out, the first letter of each one spells out the word build. Uh, so we believe in biblical truth, in unconditional love, intentional generosity, living in community, and devotion to prayer. And if you've been with us these past few weeks, you'll know that we started off our year with that fifth core value, devotion to prayer. So that is the D in the word build. Uh, And this is why we do that. We believe that prayer strengthens and deepens our relationship with God, and it invites in his presence and his power. Did you feel his presence and his power this morning as we worshiped together, as we got to witness that baptism? We believe that that is what prayer does. It It builds that in us. It strengthens us. It it connects us with his presence. And we believe what the prophet Isaiah, I'm sorry, prophet Jeremiah told us uh, in chapter 29. This is God speaking through him. And God says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And so that's what we've been doing these last three weeks. We've been seeking after God because he says when we seek after him, we will always find him. You may have met people throughout your life where there are certain people and it seems like they're just always looking for trouble, right? And whenever you look for trouble, you always manage to find it. Did you ever notice that? Well, the same is true with God. Whenever you seek after God, if that's what you're going to look for, you're going to find him because he wants to be found. He pursues us and he wants us to reciprocate that back and, and pursue him. So over these last three weeks, we've been in a sermon series called Pursuing God. So Pastor Paul kicked us off two weeks ago. Uh, Pastor Jeff uh, spoke last last week about it halfway through, and then I'm here to kind of close out that message. Uh, I don't think I said it at the beginning, but my my name is Andy Lipless. I'm one of the elders here at Bridge. Uh, And so during this time, we were not only... Uh, hearing the sermon series, but we also took this time as 14 days of prayer and fasting to just kind of not just hear about prayer and about fasting, but to experience it together as a body of Christ. And so today is day 14 of that 14 days of prayer and fasting. Uh, And throughout this series, uh, this is what we've been teaching uh, through the miracles of copy and paste. I I borrowed this chart from Pastor Paul's message uh, two weeks ago, but I think it it does a good job of kind of summarizing what it is we do and, and why we do this. We believe that throughout the Bible, God's people regularly took time to pray and fast in order to grow closer to him and to experience breakthroughs in specific areas. And so this is what we've been focused on for the last few weeks. And we have not done it simply as a history lesson, learning about, well, here's how God's people did it in the past. And this is what it looked like back when people used to pray and fast. We were coming alongside and we were participating in that. So I hope in these last couple of weeks you have felt this drawing closer to him and and you've experienced breakthroughs in specific areas. I know I can say in my own life, 
that I, I have experienced exactly what this is describing. And there have been times that were just so powerful and so meaningful to me as God continues to reveal more of his word to me. But if I'm being honest, there were also times in this 14 days of prayer and fasting that I just wanted it to be over. I don't know if anyone else experienced that, where you've got the highs and the lows. You're excited about what God's doing, but it's hard work dedicating this much time to prayer and fasting together. And so there's times where, where you just want it to be over. And it kind of reminds me of uh, a few years ago when we were in Colorado, there was a, a, a trail that we visited a couple of times called the Manitou Springs Incline. Uh, and you can see that up, up on the screen. Typically, if you're going to hike up a mountain, you'll take a trail that has switchbacks. So you go back and forth across the face of the mountain, and it's not as steep. It's kind of a gradual climb, a gradual inclination up to the top of the mountain. Well, in Manitou Springs, they said, let's just go straight up. And so they, it was a, um, a set of railroad ties that used to be a train tracks that, uh, from a, a tourist attraction that, that closed down years ago. But now people use them as stairs. And it is in, in less than a mile, you gain 2,000 feet of elevation straight up. So based on where you are in Colorado, you're already starting a mile above sea level. You're huffing and puffing a mile up. You're gaining 2,000 feet of elevation. The further up you go, the more your muscles are screaming for oxygen and the less and less oxygen there is because the air is getting thinner and thinner. But you push through, you persevere, even though there's times where you want the whole hike to be over. And you get to the very top and the views are, are just breathtaking. And you catch your breath, and then you ask yourself, well, now what? And you realize the only option you have is to keep walking because your car is now 2,000 feet below you. <laughs> so so you, you pick up your strength, you pull together your strength, and you start to hike back down. You take a more traditional trail, it's called the bar trail, down Uh, down to the bottom of the mountain, and it's got the switchbacks. And so with all the back and forth, that actually takes you three miles of hiking to cover the the 2,000 feet that you just did in in one mile on the way up. But I don't know what it is. I don't know if it is the mountain air or the views uh, or the sense of accomplishment or just the fact that you are now working with gravity instead of against gravity. But it is one of the most enjoyable hikes you'll, you'll ever experience. And it's the highlight of your weekend. Monday, you go back to work and you're telling all of your friends about it. Tuesday, you mention it to a couple of people that you didn't see the day before. And by Wednesday, you just kind of go back to your day-to-day. And, and it's, like, it's like it never happened. It's a fond memory, but you just kind of move on from there. And so what we want to do today is talk through how do we make sure that that does not happen with our time of prayer and fasting. You know, we had this wonderful mountaintop experience. Yes, there were times where it was hard, but we had these amazing breakthroughs. How do we walk away from that without having to make it seem like it never happened and we just go back to normal? So to close out this series called Pursuing God, I've entitled this morning's message, Now What? Continuing the Pursuit. So what I want to talk about this morning is where do we go from here? What do we do at the end of this time of of prayer and fasting so that this does not just become, we go back to our our daily, our ordinary lives. And it's actually interesting because if we look back in the scriptures, there was a point in Jesus' life where he is exactly where we are today. 
So Jesus was baptized. We, many of us were baptized. Some of us like 10 minutes ago. Uh, we, we were baptized. We spent this time of prayer and fasting. And then we get to see what Jesus does next. He does not just go back to carpentry and figure, you know, well, that was, that was exciting, but now it's, you know, back to work. I go back to the, the, the day-to-day life. That's, that's not what we see in scriptures. We see Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is baptized. Matthew chapter 4, he's in the wilderness praying, fasting. He resists the temptations of the devil. And then he walks out of the wilderness, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and he begins a journey that completely rewrites the course of human history. So this morning, that's the example that we want to follow. Not the climbing up a mountain and and then going back to your daily life, but how do we take this experience and how do we walk it out from here so that our story is completely rewritten from this point forward. So what I want to look at this morning is is the New Testament. uh, And I have a a map here that's kind of like how I view the New Testament. So you kind of got this timeline from from left to right. And the New Testament, if you're unfamiliar with, with the books of the Bible and how this is organized, it starts off with the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that tells the life of Christ. From there, it moves to the book of Acts, and that tells us what happens as the church is born after Jesus dies, rises from the, from the grave, spends some time with his disciples, and then he's about to ascend into heaven. Uh, he, he empowers the church, and that's what we see in the book of Acts. We see God's church being born and, and beginning to be formed. And as God's followers are kind of working all of that out throughout the book of Acts, they're writing letters to the churches that they're planting throughout those regions. And we call those letters epistles. But they are writings of the apostles to the various churches, kind of explaining this new theology of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And then we get to the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation is unique for lots of reasons. One of the reasons that the book of Revelation is unique is it kind of fits into both of these categories in the way I've drawn the map of the New Testament. It is a continuation of the story. It tells us what happens or what is going to happen uh, when Christ returns and when he reestablishes his kingdom. If, If you kind of look at that top row, we live in that space in between Acts and Revelation. So Acts is where the the church was born. Revelation is where Christ is going to return, and we kind of live in that in-between state um, before Christ returns. So that's part of Revelation is the story of the return of the king, but then also there are letters. And so it's also an epistle. There are letters to seven different churches uh, in that area at that time in the book of Revelation. So all throughout this story of the New Testament, we see a consistent pattern of prayer that is like this thread that is woven through the whole story that kind of holds all of this together. And so if we wanted to this morning, our passage for this morning's message could be the entire New Testament, but we just don't have time for that. And so what I wanted to do is I just want to pull out three examples that we see from the story of the New Testament and and ask ourselves what's happening in each of these three stories, and what can we learn about that to continue our own pursuit 
of God, our own practice of following the way of Christ. And so I picked one example from the Gospels, one example from the book of Acts, and one example from the book of Revelation so that we can look at what did prayer mean in the life of Christ? What did prayer mean to the early church? And what does prayer continue to mean all the way into the future into the return of Christ? So let's take it uh, one story at a time. We begin with number one, Seemed like a good place to start. So this is uh, a story from the Gospels. If you, can, if you want to turn with me in the Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 26. And let me just kind of set the context for, for what the story is that we are about to read. So at this point in Jesus's life, uh, he, he's been, this is probably about three years after he's come out of that time in fasting. He's been going through his ministry. He's been leading his disciples. And they have uh, what we will eventually know, uh, come, come to be known as the Last Supper, the last time meeting with his disciples uh, before he's eventually arrested and, and crucified uh, by, by the Romans. And so that, that kind of sets up the story. And what we're going to see from this story is, is my first point, and that is that prayer aligns us to God's will. So that's kind of the thought I want you to have kind of percolating in your mind as we read the story. How does prayer align us to God's will? So if we flip to Matthew chapter 26 and we start reading in verse 36, it says this. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And this has got to be the hardest prayer ever prayed in human history. Because Jesus knew God's plan that God was going to forgive the sins of everyone who puts their trust in him through the work that was about to happen to Jesus on the cross. Jesus knew he was going to be beaten. He was going to be tortured. He was going to be nailed to a cross. And he was going to suffer one of the most painful deaths a person can suffer. And that's why it says, you know, he was overwhelmed on his natural self, knowing what was about to come to him, the pain that he was about to experience. And yet, even in that moment, when he's saying, if there's any other way we can do this, if there's any way this can be taken away from me, please take this away from me. And yet, not what I want, but as you will. And Pastor Paul has used, used this analogy uh, several times as, as we've gone into times of prayer and fasting, but He says, fasting is not a hunger strike where we are trying to convince God to see things our way and to do what we want him to do. There are times where we do pray for specific things and he hears those prayers. And there are times where he does choose to answer specific prayers in in the way that we asked for. But more often than not, the influencing is happening in the other direction. It is not us trying to align God's will to make it what we wanted, 
but it is us allowing God to realign our will to his. This is something that I experienced personally in this time of of fasting over these last couple of weeks. There were very specific situations I was praying for, and there were very specific outcomes that I was asking for. So I was like, God, I want you to do X, Y, and Z, and, and here's how I need it to look. And throughout this time, as I, especially as I'm, as I'm pre- preparing this message, God is speaking to me, and, and he's like, Andy, just give those situations to me. And I'm like, I'm handing it to him, but my fist is still clenched. And he's like, Andy, I need to peel your fingers open. Let, let me take these situations from you. But do you trust me? Do you trust that even if I answer this in a way that is not the way you just asked for, are you still going to believe that I am good and that I have what's best for you in mind and that in the end, I'm going to make all things new? Do you still trust that? Are you willing to let go of your specific requests and accept that this may not happen the way you're asking? Do you still, are you still willing to say, like Jesus said, but not as I will, as you will. So that's why I said that our first point, the first thing that we learn as we see this pattern of prayer in the New Testament is that prayer aligns us to God's will. So I would encourage you that with that this morning, as you continue to walk out this habit of prayer, walking out of our time of prayer and fasting, let your time be a time where God is, is shaping how you view things, and be willing to take that step of faith that says, God, even if this doesn't go the way I want it to go, I trust that this is in your hands, and I submit my will to your will. The next thing that we see prayer do as we look through the New Testament, we jump to the book of Acts. And if you want to follow along in your Bible, we're going to start off at the very beginning of that book, Acts chapter 1. And we see that prayer empowers us to be God's church. So first it aligns us to his will, then it empowers us to be God's church. Now I'll say, I grew up in the Assemblies of God, and I was, I've been hearing Acts 1.8, well, um, if we can put that slide up, Acts 1.8, very famous, uh, very famous Bible verse, especially among Pentecostal churches, uh, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And I've been hearing this verse since I was a little kid in kids' church in the 1980s. And yet, 40-some years later, I still find things new when I read this. And I was convicted this week when I read that. When it says, but you will receive power, the word you is actually plural. So if if this had taken place down south, it would have said, but y'all will receive power, right? Because we, in Pennsylvania, we don't have a plural version of you, right? It's just you or it's you guys, I don't know. Um, but, but, but you is plural there. And, and we know this because then it says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. So it doesn't say singular, you will be my witness. It says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And you might be tempted to think, well, thanks for the grammar lesson, Andy, but what's your point? And if that's you this morning, I'd like to say that 
I don't think I like your tone. <laughs> Uh, but, but it is a valid point. So let me answer that question of why, why am I bringing this up? Why am I pointing this out? Because I think when we read this verse through the lens of our independent, self-reliant American culture, we read this and we think, oh, cool, I will receive power. When it should actually be read as, oh, cool, we will chew on church and a bunch of empowered individuals. And so what we want to be this morning is an empowered church. And what does that look like? If we turn the page of our Bibles over to Acts chapter 2, I would like to pick up in verse 42. And this talks a little bit about what that looked like in the early church when they were unified and empowered to be the church of Christ. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. And this is such a beautiful picture of what the unified body of Christ can look like. And it is so different from what we see in our modern American culture today, right? We are so divided whether it is political issues or preferences or religious disagreements, we're so divided and we're so disunified, and yet we were called not to be a bunch of strong-minded, strong-opinioned, empowered individuals, but we were called to be a unified, empowered church. This is something that, that became very real to me uh, as well, during this time of, 14, of, the, of our 14 days of, of prayer and fasting, because there are times, and, and maybe you've been in these situations before, where you go through these periods where you just get so anxious and worried about a certain situation. Like, you know, I told you, we're praying about very specific situations, and I would just get so wrapped up and worried about it. And yet, as a father and a husband, I want to appear strong and like, I've got all my stuff together, right? I am the strong father, the husband, the opener of the pickle jars. I can do this. And yet I I was convicted of, I, I really need to talk this through with my wife. This is not something I was ever intended to carry alone. And so this is something that, that we were able to, I was able to kind of admit my weaknesses and, and share that with her. And, and I was nervous because I was like, well, is, is she going to think less of me? That, you know, I, I don't have all my stuff together. I'm, I, I worry about these things. And, and then later on through the, through the time of fasting, someone else came up to me and, and they just said, Andy, can, can you pray with me? Can I kind of like keep in touch with you? And, and, and can you just help me walk through this particular situation that I'm dealing with now? And I'm like, oh, absolutely. I was, I was so impressed that that person had the, the strength to, to say that to me. And I didn't think any less of that person. In fact, I had even more respect for them that they had that level of maturity to ask a fellow believer to come alongside of them. And God convicted me in that moment. And he's like, but Andy, how come you were so afraid to talk to your own wife about this? And so that, that kind of really shaped my view of what I see in, in Acts here, of this time of, of prayer empowering us, not just as individuals, but empowering us to be a church. And so that's what we see 
uh, in, as point number two, in, as we look through this timeline of the New Testament, we see that prayer empowers us to be God's church. And then the last example that I want to look at uh, is from the book of Revelation. So if you want to start turning there, we're going to, we're going to pick up in Revelation chapter 8. But what we're going to see there is that prayer ushers in God's kingdom. And I feel like I have to give a little caveat uh, when we talk about Revelation, because Revelation is a really difficult book. It is important that it is in Scripture for a reason, because we need to understand the signs of the times, and we need to understand what it means, what it's going to look like for when Christ returns and when he restores his kingdom. But we also need to be careful because the book is full of imagery and symbolism and mystery. And I get very leery when there are people who say, I understand Revelation. I've got it all figured out. I know how this is going to go. I know what this is going to look like and when. And, and be very careful when you hear that. And, and here's why I say this. The religious leaders of Jesus' time studied the scriptures and in their mind, they knew exactly what his first coming was going to look like. And when Jesus did not meet their expectations, they missed it. And still to this day, the Jewish religion, the people um, who have not converted to Christ, still do not believe that Jesus was the Messiah that was, that was foretold in the prophecies because it didn't look like their expectations, their mental understanding of how this was supposed to go. So if that's the mistake they made with Jesus' first coming, let's not make that same mistake with his second coming. So that's all kind of my caveat. Before we open up such a tricky book, know that there are important lessons in there about what end times look like but I'm not going to be able to explain all of this to you. Uh, that, that's a whole other sermon series for another time, maybe. But I just want to point out one example of this, of how whatever those symbols really wind up looking like, we know that prayer is a thread through it. And I want to show what that looks like. And so we, we turn to Revelation chapter 8. And if I can set up the story here, uh, John receives a vision uh, and the book of Revelation, is he's writing out this vision of what he sees, what God is revealing to him of the end times. And at this point in his vision, he is in heaven, in the throne room of God, and he is witnessing, so a chapter or two before this, uh, Jesus takes a scroll, and there's seven different seals on this scroll. And every time he peels off one of the seals, something else happens on earth, and it is another warning sign on earth, giving people another opportunity to turn to Jesus before that final day of judgment. And then we get to chapter 8, and at this point he removes that seventh seal. And this is what, it's, what John tells us happens. When he opened that seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, And seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel, who had a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people. On the golden altar in front of the throne, the smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God 
from the angel's hand. This is what we were singing this morning as we sang, Worthy of It All. When we were singing, Day and night, night and day, let incense arise. This, that we were quoting Revelation, where, where the Bible tells us that all of our prayers as God's people come up to meet God on, in his throne room in heaven like incense. And there are things that we are praying for now that we may never see the answers to in our lifetime. And yet we have this glimpse into the future and we know that we are still being heard and God still has a plan and God is still going to make all things new. And in this terribly confusing story of revelation, still in that there is hope that our prayers are making it to the throne room of God like incense. And he is hearing that, and he is going to make all of this new. I think of the story of Abraham, where all the way back in the book of Genesis, God promises to Abraham that through him, through his family, someone is going to come that will bless all of the nations. And it is a prophecy about Jesus. And Moses, I'm sorry, Abraham dies Moses died too, but, but that's not the point. Abraham died all the way back in, in Genesis. He never saw the fulfillment of that prophecy in his lifetime. And yet we saw it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We see it as Jesus is born and, and begins to unfold this story. And so I'm challenged when I read stories like that and when I read passages in, in Revelation like this to say, do I have that level of faith that I can pray for something and I can believe that God will make it right? But even if I don't see it in my timeline, in my lifetime, do I still choose to say that God is good? Am I still willing to say God has things under control? And like the scripture says, just like the heavens are higher than the earth, so his ways are higher than our ways can I accept that? And so that is, that is a challenge this morning, and I'm not saying it as one who's got it all figured out. I'm saying this along with you to say, this is one of the things that prayer does in us as we allow it to, as we continue this pursuit of God. It ushers in God's kingdom. So at this point, I'm going to ask the the worship team to come up and and start to prepare to close us out. But just to kind of recap, I want to bring up the the three points that we talked about, the three different stories that we saw throughout the New Testament and and what it reminds us of as we continue this pattern of prayer, uh, walking out, coming out of this, this time of prayer and fasting. First of all, we see in the life of Jesus that prayer aligns us to God's will. Second, we see through the life of the early church that prayer empowers us to be God's church. And sometimes that empowerment is for ourselves. Sometimes that empowerment is for the person next to us. And sometimes that's the humility to let the person next to us empower us. And then lastly, prayer ushers in God's kingdom. We may not not see all of these pieces come together in our lifetime, and yet we believe and we trust and we hope that he is in control. So as you think about these things over the coming week, I'd also ask you,
encourage you to ask yourself these three questions that go along those, these three points. What do you need to surrender to God's will? What's that thing like me that you're grasping onto so tightly that you need it to go a certain way? What's that thing that you need to just release and say, God, I trust you. Your will be done, not my own. So maybe that's what you need to work on this week. Maybe it's number two, where you just need God's power. Maybe you need it for yourself. Maybe you need it to help another brother or sister. Maybe you need the humility to just let someone else reach out and help you. What is that situation for you? Where do you need God's power? And then lastly, where have you placed your hope? Do you believe? Do you trust? Can you say with confidence, even if, even if this doesn't go the way I want it to go, even if God doesn't follow my plan, do I trust that he is good? Do I trust that he has his best for me and that he is going to work all things together for the good of those who love him, just like he says in his scripture? In just a minute, the worship team is going to lead us in a song. Um, but before we, before we get there, I want to kind of share the words that we're going to be singing. And this is why Summer alluded to that earlier in the worship service. That, you know, it's important to think about the words that you're singing. It's not just a melody. It's not just a catchy tune. Think about this. But I've also been thinking a lot lately about what Pastor Jeff said last week in his sermon. One of his points when he's talking about prayer was be vocal. And I thought, oh, what? That's interesting. I've not heard that perspective before. I tend to, you know, I, I tend to be a more introverted person, tend to pray, pray silently. But, but Pastor Jeff was making a point that sometimes you need to pray out loud. You need to vocalize what it is you're asking God for. And, and I was thinking about that a lot throughout the week. And, and what I realized is so many times, for better or for worse, how we feel affects what we say, right? And sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad. But Usually, how we feel affects what we say. And yet, it's just as true that what we say can affect how we feel. And so this morning, the song that we're going to sing is a song of declaration. And we're going to say these words. We're going to sing them out loud. And some of us are going to sound great. And other of us aren't. But that doesn't matter. We're, we're declaring these words. And, and Trent, if you, could, if you could bring up the words to verse 1 first. Here, here's the word that we're going to be declaring. Let this shape how you feel this week. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when strivings cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ, I stand. That's what we're going to declare. And if we look at verse four, we're also going to be saying this. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand.
So I would ask you to just stand with me and we're going to declare this together. The worship team is going to lead us in these four verses and then I'll come back up. But let these words of our mouth shape our thoughts and shape how we feel.